0: Well, hey there, welcome to the show.
1: Welcome to the gathering place for those who've embraced the truth that they are not sheep. Although I'm going to tell you from firsthand experience, uh, not being a sheep, it has a, it has a few ups and downs. There are some definite drawbacks. Uh, I guess in the end, though, you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? Well, I hope uh, by the end of this hour of the show, you can answer that affirmatively. Yes, it's worth it, no matter the inconvenience. So I have a story I want to share with you. It's, uh, I guess I'll, I'll call this. What I did yesterday by Brian Hyde. Um, I went to church. I went to church for the first time in four months. Last time I attended a church meeting in a chapel it was clear back early in March, and you know I, I'm going to confess I've missed this. This is something that I've, I've enjoyed doing church at home, and that's been a nice option. And in many in many ways, it's brought my family closer together. But I was ready. To at least, you know, get back to some degree of normal and and, you know, see some of the faces that I haven't seen for a long time and and uh, get to gather together with like minded people, you know, in fellowship. And, you know, I'm glad I went, but I'm going to tell you right now, it was one of the strangest things and and definitely different from any other church service that I've ever attended. And the reason was, of course, the COVID-19 safety guidelines that dictated almost every aspect of how this meeting was held. Now, my church leaders, my local church leaders have sent out, you know, emails explaining this is the way that things are going to have to be, you know, as we're trying to uh, do our part as good citizens and avoid spreading the COVID-19 virus. Um, These are some of the, the details that have to be observed. So things like every other pew in the chapel was closed so they could maintain strict distancing between the families that were in attendance. Furthermore, you actually had to sign up your family ahead of time. And there were only a limited number of families that could go. What that meant is they would do, I don't know, as many as three different meetings to try to cycle through as many people as wanted to attend. But very strictly, you know, separated from one another. Uh, There were no hymnals, you know, passing hymn books back and forth, uh, different hands touching them could lead to, you know, The spread of disease. The chapel was sanitized before and after the meeting. We're also encouraged enter and exit through these doors specifically, and this I thought was interesting was please do not socialize inside the building. Pretty interesting stuff. Oh, and everyone in attendance who was over two years of age was wearing a face mask or face covering. Except for me. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Uh Aha, Look at you, Brian, turning church into an activist event. But I, I want you to understand, this is not a decision that I took lightly. Even though I, I have made it pretty clear, I don't, I don't agree with the mask mandates, and and we're going to talk more about what those mandates actually are, are pushing us towards. I, I, think that there is something far more, um, or far less noble than simply, oh, you know, we're trying to protect the public health. I have a strong suspicion that we we're, we're being pushed into something here. With health being the excuse or being the leverage, you know, fear of losing our health or of getting someone sick, being the, the mechanism by which we're made to do these things. or are persuaded, do I dare say coerced, <laughs> to do these things. But I chose not to wear the mask. And, you know, I, I was looking around, I'm trying to see, is there anybody else, is anybody else in this meeting not going to be wearing a mask? And other than very, very young children, I'm talking toddler age children, everybody had a mask on. And you know, we were told by email that the masks are suggested, but not required. So when I decided I would forego it, I just uh, you know, I quietly took my place there by the side of my family, and it was a very short, very meaningful service. I was glad to be there. I don't want you to make. I don't want you to think that uh, I, I had a, a, a miserable experience. It was just. It was different in some ways. And and probably the biggest thing that I noticed was with those masks on, there was a far more subdued atmosphere, not reverent. It was reverent, but there was a subdued attitude about just about everybody. I mean, some would disagree with you, maybe, but just there there was almost a, a sadness as everybody's, you know, got their masks on and making sure their kids are keeping their masks on and and. Of course, uh, being the only person there not wearing a mask, I was feeling mildly out of place. It was a little bit uncomfortable. And I want to make really clear. There were a number of curious glances from adults and children alike. Maybe some of the bolder ones were thinking, what the hell is Brother Hyde doing? I don't know. (laughs) Thankfully, I didn't get the Ned Flanders treatment. If you're not familiar with the Ned Flanders treatment, can I just, can I share that with you? Okay. This is Ned Flanders showing up to church. And this is what the Ned Flanders treatment sounds like. There he is, Ned Flanders, the fallen one, the evil one. I bet he's the one who wrote Homer all over the bathroom. Oh, I think we should leave. <laughs> I didn't get that. No, everybody was very kind, and you know, but it was clear that uh, I was definitely out of step with the crowd, and I I want to make very clear I'm not I'm not a victim for this. It's not like oh, it was so hard. My life is terrible. I wasn't there to make a political statement either. I went there to support my family. I went there to worship God. But I would not wear the mask. And the decision to not wear that ubiquitous face mask was a matter of personal conscience. And I don't expect everybody to understand that. But that's why I'm I'm using the the term personal conscience. See, I'm, I'm not trying to tell you by invoking my conscience that somehow I'm a better or I'm a wiser person than you are. And I'm really not trying to make you feel guilty or ignorant just because you may not see things the way that I do. I'm trying to do something that uh, it turns out can be pretty difficult, even under good circumstances. And that is, I am trying to live up to what my conscience is telling me. And right now, my conscience is telling me that this is a time when I need to stand firm, no matter what the crowd is doing. Now, your individual conscience may be telling you something entirely different. And you know what? That's the beauty of having a conscience. It's a uniquely personal part of who we are. And our conscience is, you know, more than just the little voice of, hey, that's right and that's wrong. Our conscience includes our integrity, our humility. It includes our reason and our intelligence to the degree that we allow them to align with what Leonard E. Reed referred to as ultimate wisdom. And by the way, in the show notes, you'll have an opportunity to to see his... uh, essay conscience on the battlefield one of the uh, most impactful essays I've ever read in my life so no matter how much value we place on things like getting the approval of others or fortune or fame or power you know these things do not accompany us into eternity none of them do the only thing that goes with us when our time in this life is done is our conscience and it would be a good idea not to be a stranger with your conscience when that time comes. If you're meeting your conscience, really meeting your conscience for the first time on your deathbed, you'll have missed some really important opportunities. The sooner we become acquainted with and become in harmony with our conscience, the, the more likely we're going to be able to chart a course consistent with our deepest potential. But, you know, the, the truth of the matter is a lot of us learn to kind of put our conscience on mute or at least push it to the back of our minds for most of our lives. We learn this in childhood. And part of it is because when you follow your conscience, you are not following a path to uh, you're not following a path to adulation or acceptance. Right. The masses really don't care. In fact, when you follow your conscience, if you if your conscience says you can't go along with the crowd, that is the surest way to start having what uh, what Neil A. Maxwell referred to once as public relations problems. (laughs) So in the case of wearing the covid mask, the easiest path for me would be to simply put the mask on and just keep my misgivings to myself. Right. I mean, who wants to be viewed with suspicion? Who wants to be viewed with derision? Do you want to have your motives and your sanity questioned, especially when almost everybody else is on board with the practice? That's the price you pay for having a conscience, though. Sometimes your conscience says you've got to stand apart from polite society. And historically, there have been plenty of times where a tiny handful of individuals put higher value on what their conscience was telling them than their need for the approval of others. And they paid a price for it. Typically, they were made to suffer and they were considered troublemakers by the movers and shakers of their time. But in retrospect, you look back at some of these dissenters and you will see they provided timely resistance to ideas that diminished or harmed the society in which they were spreading. Now, I don't know if this is the same kind of time that we live in. I don't know if that's what we're going through. But I do know that there is a clear movement afoot that is demanding that all of us wear this outward symbol of our submission to its directives. And my conscience is telling me that these health directives have less to do with protecting the populace from a virus and more to do with revealing exactly how far we are willing to submit. I know it's, it's not asking a lot to wear a piece of cloth over our faces, but what if that piece of cloth symbolizes something far deeper than just a desire to avoid illness? See, I'm less concerned with who's right than I am with what's right, and my conscience will not allow me to go along just because it might spare me your criticism and you don't have to agree with me all i'm asking you to consider is that there might be something more than political activism taking place here and i would ask you what is your conscience telling you
0: this is the brian hyde show the brian hyde show
1: And once again, we are back. Welcome to The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, just want to remind you that uh, we have a wonderful website. It's thebrianhydeshow.com. You can get my show notes there. If, if you don't have time to listen to the whole show, and I understand life is busy, and not everybody can sit down to, you know, 42 minutes at a time of, of uh, this program. That's, you know, with all the commercials out and, you know, posted in podcast form. I get it. But if you find value in the various articles and essays and the various uh, things that I talk about here, I have links to them in the show notes. And those show notes are posted every day that this show is on the air at thebryanhideshow.com. You can also grab them at lovingliberty.net. So if, if, it, if it suits you, if it pleases the crown, you may, you may do this you know, in, in your own leisure, but there's some great stuff to read. And, and I've got a couple of essays today that I really hope you'll take a look at. In the last segment, I was talking about conscience versus masks. And it turns out that the mask that I'm supposed to wear doesn't exactly fit over my conscience. And and I know that right now there's very little peace to be found anywhere you look. In fact, it seems like peace has been taken from the earth and, and it's just about the impossible dream to find it. But I just would ask you to consider this. Being at peace with your conscience gives you the ability to be at peace with a whole lot of other stuff as well. Take that for what it's worth. All right, I'm going to shift gears here. So I, I mentioned, I, st- I think that there is something more than simply, well, this is just a good health practice in the mandating of putting on the masks. And today marks the day that a lot of businesses, I mean, it sounds like a majority of the major retailers, grocery stores, Walmart, Sam's Club, all of these places where you would be likely to be, you know, going about the business of living life, Home Depot, they're all mandating that you wear masks. And it's, it's a curious relationship because it's not like the store is standing there pointing a gun at you saying you will wear the mask or not. Um, you're probably going to get hassled. There are people whose job is going to be to make sure that uh, people are in compliance when they come into the store. To me, the creepy part is behind the scenes, there is a gun pointed at someone's head and it is the government pointing the gun at the uh, stores or the owners of those stores saying, you will do this or else. So while government may not be the one actually forcing the compliance, it's, uh, it's someone is forcing someone somewhere. And in this case, it's government forcing these corporations to do this. I know it's out of sight and out of mind, but it just seems very dystopian. And I came across an essay by Parrish Miller, The dystopian nightmare is already here. So for those of you who feel like we've been living in a movie, you know, a dystopian movie or a dystopian novel, um, Parrish Miller makes a pretty good case that, yeah, it's here. Listen to this explanation. Based on what we are seeing right now at both the government and corporate level, Parrish Miller writes, it is clear that the 2020 pandemic is being pushed as a strategy to exclude rebels and free thinkers from the market and to ostracize them from society altogether. It starts with demanding masks and temperature checks, but it will soon include mandatory vaccinations and biometrically encoded COVID passports being required at both government and corporate checkpoints. Now, I'm going to pause here for just a second. I know that there are people who would have rolled their eyes six months ago to hear such a thing. That is nuttery. That's tinfoil hat craziness. After what you've seen unfold in the last four months, can you still say that with the same confidence? We may not be there yet, but it's pretty clear to me, and I hope to anybody else who is paying attention, that that's the direction we're going. Parrish Miller says it doesn't stop there, of course. We must also factor in the already pervasive surveillance state, perpetual smartphone tracking, and a cashless society as traditional currency becomes first unaccepted and soon after unavailable. That's happening, too. Here we have all the necessary ingredients for a dystopian nightmare that will put its fictional counterparts to shame. And Parrish Miller says this isn't some paranoid fantasy either. These are all things that are either already happening or actively being supported as, quote, solutions to the supposed problem of nonconformists having the audacity to exist. If we do not take action now, meaning today, this week and this month, not next year, The Orwellian future, Parrish Miller describes, will become our despotic reality before we even realize what's occurred. We need to do more than just talk about it or even engage in small acts of defiance and civil disobedience. We need to be actively preparing for life in a society that is aggressively working against us at every turn. We need to organize our resources and build networks of trusted partners with whom we can trade and barter. Traditional means of obtaining goods like food, clothing, precious metals, guns and ammo and many other necessities may soon be restricted only to those willing to surrender their bodily autonomy and self-ownership to the irrational and harmful demands of governments and their corporate enforcers. The goal of the tyrants is to force us into submission through deprivation and isolation. Rather than resorting immediately to direct violence, they will use access to the market as a carrot to bribe people into compliance. Those who refuse to bend the knee will face a bleak future of scarcity and seclusion. Those who survive will not be left alone indefinitely, however. Phase two will turn far more violent. The state will seize children, confiscate property, and eventually kidnap and cage those who refuse to submit to the state's demands. Those who continue to resist will be hunted down And executed. Now, they won't call it that, of course. They will claim our sustained opposition caused them to, quote, fear for their safety. And Parrish Miller says that's why we need to make sure that we're well armed and ready, both physically and mentally, to defend ourselves against whoever may attempt to deprive us of our life, liberty and property. We must never forget that a central component of the radical left's agenda is forcibly disarming individuals so they cannot defend themselves against tyranny. Now I know that's a that's a bitter pill to try to swallow. I don't want to believe it's true either. My defenses go up, my shields are you know a full power front you know don't, don't don't let any any of this through. But I have to believe that it's it's real. I think we are seeing one of the greatest tests of our commitment to the ideals of liberty that has been seen within many generations. In this country. And Parrish Miller says, How committed are you to protect yourself and your family from being muzzled, injected, tested, and tracked? How much hardship are you willing to endure to avoid the state's toxins? Are you willing to use lethal force, if necessary, to defend the life and health of you and your family? This is all pretty serious stuff, isn't it, right? Sorry to be the big wet blanket to land on you today, but, but these are the kind of questions we have to consider. And, and Parrish Miller says the time has come to make some very serious decisions about your future. Those who are willing to compromise their principles now because it's just a mask will find it much easier to keep surrendering as the pressures and threats escalate. And that, my friend, is exactly why my conscience is telling me. As unpopular as it may be, as curious as it may be. Look, nobody, nobody was angry with me that I could see. I don't know if people went home after, you know, we attended church and they were like, what what does Brother Hyde think he's doing? Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. But this is the beginning. This is the place where if you give up a little bit, you will eventually give it all up. And I think at some level people realize that and I believe that one of the reasons why people get so confrontational and so angry and so willing to confront total strangers over the fact that you're not wearing a mask is they worry that uh, we've all got to do this together. If we all do it, if everybody does it, then it has to be right. They know they're going to surrender more and more of their autonomy. They know they're going to surrender more and more of their principles. Maybe it makes them angry when they see someone who's saying, well, I won't. It's not a matter of I'm superior to you. It's just I know what I stand for. I can't give up without a fight. Parrish Miller says, I will close with the immortal words of Patrick Henry. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. And Parrish Miller says, I have chosen my course. Have you chosen yours?
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, once again, welcome back. Glad you could join us today. Please spread the word that this program is on the air. And by the way, I understand we are now going to be carried um, on the weekends on uh, two of the big talk stations in southern Utah, KDXU and KSUB. I want to give a shout-out to them and uh, tip my hat to Andy Griffin, Marty Lane, Tim Nesmith, and the others who helped make this possible. These are my old stomping grounds, and I had many, many happy years there uh, building large, loyal, listening audiences. And I am so happy to once again be on the airwaves of these incredible Heritage AM stations. It's so sad to see. Terrestrial Radio, you know, is, uh, is, is hanging on. But uh, technology has moved a lot of people towards the podcast realm, and that's where we tend to find ourselves today. So if you're listening by podcast, I'm so thankful. Share the word. Let a few people know. Send them to my website, com. You can subscribe to the podcast there. And of course, I also am including my show notes every single day because I have incredible Articles, incredible uh, essays that I come across. In fact, I have a great list of resources for free thinkers that uh, you may find interesting. To some of the some of the different news aggregator sites that I like to go to to get a little little bit better take on what is going on in the world around me. It's all there at your fingertips. The com. All right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, let's talk about how America is being portrayed as a racist nation. Now, is there something that can actually back that up? I mean, you've heard of the 1619 Project the New York Times undertook, and it's it's very, uh, very interesting how suddenly all the stuff that we knew before us has to be renounced, has to be cast aside because someone has discovered why really this was just a big front for racism. Or at least that's how the narrative appears to go. Adam Mill, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has an article on how junk studies are used to show racism. And I love that... To, to illustrate how bad junk studies can mislead or can, how damaging they can be to the public, he takes us back to March 23rd, 1989. A room full of reporters and scientists are buzzing in anticipation of an announcement of a breakthrough that, if it panned out, would propel humanity into a new era of unlimited pollution-free energy. University of Utah's Vice President for Research introduced two scientists, Dr. Stan Pons and Dr. Martin Fleischman. The scientists then announced that a simple device using palladium and heavy water could generate energy from a type of cold fusion resulting from chemical reactions. Now, some of you are nodding your heads going, oh, yeah, Fleischmann and Pons, of course. Now, we still don't know whether this discovery was an intentional hoax or whether it was just wishful thinking. But at the time, Adam Mill says that my father and other scientists knew to roll their eyes with skepticism. In other words, real scientists demanded the details of the experiment so they could attempt to replicate its results. Nobody could reproduce the results these Utah professors claimed to discover. And the episode remains a cautionary tale to all of science. Scientific studies confirming America to be a racist country have become the modern equivalent of the cold fusion experiment. A research psychologist can attain fame and lavish funding if she can publish a study demonstrating an urgent need for government intervention to correct the epidemic of systemic race or systematic racism. Most calls for drastic social change rely on platitudes and we know type statements asking for evidence or support for charges like these can be risky. In fact, it might invite retaliatory criticism, but if one is patient and drills through the links, one can uncover the, un- the allegedly scientific studies to said that are said to support these assumptions about a racist America. Now he goes into several of these studies. In fact, um, advocacy says he says commonly cite the Bertrand and Molanathan study from 2004 to demonstrate that racial bias has infected all hiring decisions in America. Apparently this study submitted fictitious job applicants with names associated with African-Americans to real employers. The study appeared to conclude that African-Americans are far less likely to receive job interviews than applicants with traditional European or American names. So Tyrone Washington was passed over as Tad Snodgrass III was more likely to uh, to get a uh, callback. Or at least that's, that's how it goes. That's the theory. In 2016, however, scientists could not replicate the conclusions of the Bertrand study. In the scientific community, that would mean... One could not use the earlier study to make any further generalizations, but that fact doesn't stop the New York Times from continuing to cite the study to advance its social justice agenda. The blog Replication Index observes that the entire field of social psychology suffers from a validation crisis or replication crisis. The author notes, quote, many published results do not replicate in honest replication attempts that allow the data to decide whether a hypothesis is true or false. This replication crisis is sometimes attributed to the lack of replication studies before 2011. However, this is not the case. Most published results were replicated successfully. However, these successes were entirely predictable from the fact that only successful replications would be published. These sham replication studies provided illusory evidence for theories that have been discredited over the past eight years by credible replication studies, end quote. And Adam Mills says the author adds, this is mostly due to self-serving biases and motivated reasoning of test developers. The gains from confirming an assumption that is widely used are immense. Thus, weak evidence is used to claim that an assumption is valid. Now, Adam Mills says, of course, some research scientists commit outright fraud for the purpose of gaining fame and funding. For example, Dutch social scientist Diederik Stapel admitted faking data to support his discrimination hypothesis. This discovery, uh, this led to a discovery of massive fraud in dozens of Dutch social psychology papers. In 2018, Replication Index reviewed a roundup of studies that appeared to demonstrate virtually all Americans have, quote, implicit racial bias. Again, the survey confirmed that the conclusions of racial bias are virtually impossible to replicate legitimately in subsequent experiments. Nevertheless, the discredited studies remain a staple of woke orthodoxy. They're used to justify the divisive training in which white Americans Americans are told they must be racist when the studies don't conform to this conclusion. In 2019, Replication Index exposed flaws in the Implicit Association Test, or IAT, which is used to construct studies that attempt to show that all people suffer from implicit bias. According to the site, the IAT is best known as a measure of prejudice, racial bias, or attitudes of white Americans toward African Americans. A review of 21 studies revealed consistent unreliability in the methods and analysis of data. Replication Index concluded... The race IAT is 20 years old. It has been used in hundreds of articles to make empirical claims about prejudice. The confusion between measures and constructs has created a public discourse about implicit racial bias that may occur outside of awareness. However, this discourse is removed from the empirical facts. It's highly destructive, says Adam Mill, to teach Americans to assume that their coworkers and neighbors harbor racial biases. But that's exactly what we're being taught, isn't it? And these studies finding biases are the product of pandering and wishful thinking by researchers who understand that studies confirming the narrative will lead to fame and to increased funding. That's the incentive. These flawed studies and the propaganda that grows out of them stoke mistrust and tribalism. Academia has become a noxious echo chamber. Now, Adam Mills says, ironically, the continued reliance on flawed studies shows exactly the opposite of what these researchers wish to prove. America is not a racist country. If unconscious bias could be demonstrated through properly designed and validated studies, it wouldn't be necessary to rely on junk studies. Without the meddling of biased researchers and social justice advocates, he says our country would be much further along in the principled goal of true legal and social equality, regardless of race. Now, I'm going to segue from this into another topic that uh, I, I hope that you'll have a chance to to check out this essay. It's a very lengthy essay. It's actually a transcript of a speech given by Daniel Ajamian. This was a speech he gave, I believe, to the uh, Mises Institute. Sorry. No, yeah, it was a talk at uh, 2020 Mises University. And it's called The Greatest Political Strategist in History. And it's a name that you would not recognize. Some would say, well, Karl Marx, more people have lived under his stuff. But uh, as far as strategists go, this is a name that you might be familiar with. If you've listened to my shows for the last 20 years, you'll know we've talked about Antonio Gramsci many times. Antonio Gramsci is the father of cultural Marxism. That is taking Marxism out of the economic and the, the production realm and putting it into the cultural realm. And this incredible essay will give you all the background of how his ideals, how his orthodoxy has become the cultural revolution that we see playing out before us today. How it's built momentum, it's long march through the institutions, and how it is the source of political correctness that we see today. Which, by the way, that political correctness, do you have the impression that it's ramping up a little bit? Well, you're absolutely right, it is. Check out the essay in the show notes at thebrienhideshow.com. You'll be fascinated, but give yourself some time. It's a big, lengthy talk. It's well worth your time if you want to truly understand this issue.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right, we are back. Thanks again for being a part of our audience here on The Brian Hyde Show. And again, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do so. It's an easy thing to do. Go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll find an easy place to subscribe. You'll also find show notes. Oh, and I've, I've kind of kicked off writing again. I'm starting to, to write on a more regular basis. My blog is there. Take it for what it's worth. You know, I'm not charging anything for access to the content. So just... Knock yourself out and feel free to leave comments. Feel free to leave feedback. I certainly don't have all the answers and I can't tell you how appreciative I am to my listeners who, if I get something wrong or if I'm missing some of the essential data, you never let me down. You hold my feet to the fire and you keep me, you know, you keep me honest and keep me on the straight and narrow. And I appreciate that. I really do. So George Orwell is getting a fair amount of uh, of airtime today. And I guess it's because we're we're living in circumstances that uh, seem strangely plucked from one of his uh, his novels, whether it's 1984, whether it's Animal Farm. Holy cow, that guy gave us more cautionary tales to consider. And instead, people picked him up and went, hey, this looks like an instruction manual. This must be how we should do it. So let's talk for a few moments about uh, groupthink. Terrific article on intellectualtakeout.org from Fred Lucas. Tweets of Washington journalists betray groupthink. Listen to this. Washington journalists' tweets and interactions on Twitter show that those delivering news on government and politics to most Americans live in more insular micro bubbles than previously thought, according to a new study. These journalists display a vulnerability to groupthink and blind spots. Now, the study by journalism professors Nikki Usher and Yee Man Margaret Ng of the University of Illinois, Urbana, Champaign, doesn't directly assert that the groupthink is liberal. However, it refers to traditional perceptions of the news media going back to at least 1964 and establishes what it calls the peer-to-peer dynamics of journalists. Media bias and promoting narratives has been a particular issue in recent years. The study, published june thirtieth, measured these dynamics through Twitter and concludes the dangers of journalists having limited perspectives are real. While this study does not purport to show possible worsening over time, it does provide support that shows siloed communities of journalists and thus that shows siloed communities of journalists and thus offers an important, empirically grounded caveat about their vulnerability to groupthink and blind spots. End quote. Now, the study identifies nine clusters of news organizations called communities of practice that routinely retweet and interact with fellow members of their groups. These include the elite legacy community made up of journalists from The Washington Post, NPR, The New York Times, NBC News and Politico. The congressional journalism community, including journalists from Bloomberg, Politico, The Associated Press, The Wall Street Journal, CQ Roll Call and C-SPAN and the TV cluster, which includes journalists from ABC News, Fox News, and CBS News. Now, separately, the study gives CNN its own cluster because so much of the Twitter is, Twitter interaction is between or among CNN employees. In particular, it is concerning that CNN journalists are tweeting to mostly other CNN journalists about CNN. Even if this is an organizational mandate, it nonetheless serves as a powerful echo chamber that leaves CNN's internal sense about what news matters unchecked and reconfirmed by those who work there. Interesting. It reminds me of the old parody commercial we used to have, you know, back in my disc jockeying days about K-Jock, disc jockeys talking to other disc jockeys 24-7. Well, that's kind of CNN in a nutshell. CNN employees tweeting about CNN to other CNN employees. The article goes on to talk about the critique of Eastern liberal media generally dates to Barry Goldwater in the 1960s. The report notes adding that elite media and coastal elitism have reached a fever pitch in the Trump era. It says journalists widely predicted that Hillary Clinton would win the 2016 election. The aftermath prompted renewed interest among journalists and scholars focused on the United States as to whether political journalists, particularly those in Washington, were in a media bubble. U.S. journalists are more likely to be insulated in liberal political buttles, bubbles rather in big cities that are growing bluer. End quote. Frank Lucas says the researchers don't try to say whether each journalist leans left or right rather based on Twitter. But the study says the clusters suggest that journalists now tend to interact even within smaller communities of like-minded journalists that have, than have previously been considered. If journalists are talking to even smaller groups of journalists who share similar orientations, the study says there's real concern about the limitations of these epistemic communities in generating knowledge and information for the public. I don't know what to tell you other than this is the reason why we have to keep that healthy sense of skepticism about everything that is reported. The way that it's reported, look for those buzzwords, those emotion-laden words that try to to apply labels. Those are a sure sign that someone has departed from objective journalism and fact-telling and has instead gone to storytelling with a narrative that they want you to buy into. And usually there's some preordained conclusion that they would like you to arrive at as well. Why? Because you can't be trusted to come to that on your own. You have to be shepherded. You have to be told this is what you need to think. Now, I understand that, uh, you know, maybe maybe I'm guilty of the same thing. Heaven knows I try to be aware and I try not to do this. If anything, I, I would love for you to think of this show as, well, this is, this is like the basis for a cult that brainwashes its followers into thinking for themselves. Okay, tongue-in-cheek stuff aside. My goal as a commentator is not to make you uh, want to hang on every word that I say. I do appreciate that you listen. I I appreciate those people who give me feedback and say, "Man, you are a, you are a voice of reason," or "I appreciate your take on things." I really do appreciate it because I work very hard to have an informed and principled take. And you know, and this is one of the reasons why. Going back to what I said earlier about conscience, I cannot let my conscience go to the wayside. I can't just set it aside in order to do whatever's going to make me more popular which means there are going to be times you will definitely disagree with me. That's okay. But I have an even stronger goal. Rather than create this this tribe of followers or create, you know, a a bunch of accolades who who just want to, uh, you know, praise everything that I'm doing. My goal is to hopefully help persuade you to come on this path of self-determination and free thinking and clear and independent thought to the point where you outgrow me. I've seen it happen in my own life. I've talked about this before when it came out that uh, Rush Limbaugh, you know, had uh, lung cancer and, you know, things, things have been looking pretty grim for him this year. And I, I stopped listening to Rush Limbaugh many, many years ago. But I always will owe that man a debt of gratitude for showing me and teaching me that it's fun to get engaged in civic discussion. It's fun to debate and to defend and to to uh, to toss around the ball on different topics. I would like to think that he would be honored to know that uh, he not only did he set my feet on the path that uh, that has led to me being a commentator and writer that I am today but but there came a point where I outgrew him. And that's a compliment to him that uh, thank you for getting me started on this path and then encouraging me to go my own way. And to chart my own course, and that is exactly what I'm suggesting I would love to see happen with you. If you're listening to this program, there's a better than average chance that you are a person who places greater value on truth than you do on just simply doing whatever the crowd's doing. Some people would say, well, that would make you antisocial, but it doesn't. No, it just means that you recognize there's more going on here than meets the eye. We've got to think about these things at a deeper level and so far as I am able, I want to be one of those voices of truth that gives people, you know, encouragement and, and information and light that can help them navigate those choppy waters that we find ourselves in. But I don't want to just create followers. The greatest leaders that I have ever known in my life personally are the ones who created other leaders. And what I'm suggesting is I want you To step up and assume a role of leadership in whatever your sphere happens to be. Maybe that sphere is just your own home. Maybe it's within your workplace. Maybe it's within your profession or your field. I absolutely believe that every one of us has a personal mission. I look at it this way I think it is a God given purpose. And that uh, we were sent here to this life with passions, with abilities, with talents that we were given the opportunity to uncover, to develop and to magnify. For a greater purpose than just simply making money or earning awards for actually bettering the people around us and bettering humanity. The happiest people I know are the ones who have tapped into that. I know my life has been immeasurably changed for the happier because of that. And I'm encouraging you to consider that maybe you have a similar role to play as well. We can't do that in an echo chamber. We can't do that if we all just sit around politely agreeing with each other. But we can definitely help build one another. Thanks for being a part of this process.